Hi, and welcome back to Women Rule. I'm Louisa Savage, an editorial director at Politico, and I'll be hosting this episode of the podcast. Today, I wanted to bring you into the world of Kristen Beck. I have a war room upstairs. I guess that's how you just, man cave, war room, I don't know what you want to call it. It's a woman cave, I don't know, whatever term you want to give it, but I have the room upstairs with the TV, and it has a lot of the old SEAL Team plaques and just stuff all around. So, and that's also where the gun cabinet is. She's a former Navy SEAL who has fought in some of the world's most dangerous combat zones, including Iraq and Afghanistan. She's a decorated war veteran, a recipient of the Purple Heart, and she's also transgender. I knew who I was at a very young age. My name is Kirsten Beck. I served 20 years in the Navy. I uh, retired, and now I live on a farm. Earlier this week, we visited Kristen at her home in southern Maryland, the sunny 53-acre farm where she keeps a lot of animals, and as she'll tell you, where she keeps a lot of guns. I have uh, horses, black Angus cattle, I have dogs and uh, barn cats and a lot of chickens, and there are snakes over there and foxes and all kinds of, it's just, it's the country. It's very country. It's a, I guess if you walked in here and you didn't know it was my house, you would just go, wow, this person's like a super patriot. Because there's American flags all over the place and there's military stuff here and there. There's guns in the corner. So I got a shotgun in that corner and a 22 over there. Because we do have predators. So there's there's definitely things that are out trying to get the chickens. And so when I'm out on the ranch, you know, walking along the fences, you know, I'll have a sidearm. Kristen's farm feels like an entirely different universe from the sort of political bubble that we usually dwell in here at Women Rule. But it's really not that far, just about an hour's drive from Washington, D.C., where there was some news last week that hit Kristen very close to home. Surprise announcement this morning. President Trump reversed the previous administration's order to admit transgendered individuals into the The president blew up the transgender policy in the military. Just three tweets and nothing but the tweets. President Trump announced over Twitter last week that transgender individuals wouldn't be allowed to serve in, quote, any capacity in the U.S. military. The tweets were unexpected, especially because just last year, President Obama's defense secretary announced they were actually lifting the ban on transgender people serving in the military. Trump's tweet, which isn't official policy just yet, could affect thousands of transgender individuals in the armed forces. We talk about all of that with Kristen. We discussed whether she thinks Trump's rhetoric will embolden transgender people or push them back into the shadows. And we talked about her own personal journey from bearded Navy SEAL to a woman in a skirt and heels who is fighting another battle now, one for the next generation of people like her. Please stay tuned for that conversation. As always, if you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review and follow me on Twitter at Louisa C.H. Savage. That's Louisa with a Z. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now let's get to our interview with Kristen Beck, where we started off talking about Trump's transgender military ban. Well, so let's talk about the tweet. On July 26th, President Trump tweeted, After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. And he added, 
Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. That was the tweet. Um, where were you when this tweet came in and, and, and what went through your mind? I live on a farm and we have horses and cattle and I was out working on a fence and my phone started buzzing and I, I was like, what the heck is going on? Because I got a bunch of emails, uh, phone calls, people were trying to get a hold of me. So I looked and somebody said something about a tweet. So I went on Twitter and I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, this was just out of the blue, totally out of the blue. So I started making some phone calls back to some folks and they asked me to come in. And then about three three hours after the, the tweet, I was in a studio at uh, at CNN and, and MSNBC and, and everybody And what, else. what was happening inside? What, what, what did you what did you think about that? I was so disappointed in leadership, in any leader that would just come out like that and just slam and close that door to so many people that had these great expectations of living an open life, of living their full lives. So I was, it was, I was sad. And then the reason I was most sad was, how do you be a leader and represent and set an example for the entire country? That's what he is. The president of the United States is the example of our nation, the highest office. All these young kids growing up, so they're not seeing someone who's compassionate or empathetic or kind. They're seeing a, a hate. They're seeing bigotry. They're seeing him shut down entire populations of people. But do you think that the tweet then has more impact than just on the military? It has great impact across our entire country. It has an impact, I think, more so on these young, you know, the younger generation. Do you think if you were still serving in the military and the commander-in-chief put out that tweet, I mean, can you still serve your commander-in-chief? And what, what would that mean to people who are actually serving right now? Yeah, so the commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief until something changes. So he's the boss. We're going to follow the rules. We're going to follow the orders. But his tweet was not, it's, a, it's an idea. It's not a directive. It's not an executive order. It's not anything. It's just, it's just kind of a blast over, like, it's just a cannon shot just over. It's a warning shot of an idea. It's not a policy. It's not anything. And then a day later, General Dunford came out and said the policy will not change until we get orders, until we get this. The policy has been worked on now for over a year to allow open service. And so there's a lot of people that have put a lot of effort into this policy, a rewrite after a rewrite of drafts and instructions and the policy changes. There's a lot of work. And a lot of people have been getting education courses and uh, sailors in the Navy, you know, airmen in the Air Force. They've been going to uh, courses on, you know, what is transgender? Here's the terminology. Here's what you say. Here's how you, here's how you, you know, treat these folks. And the bottom line was treat them like you would treat any other sailor or any other Marine. They're a soldier. They're serving their country. Treat them with dignity and respect, just like you would want to be treated yourself. So it's now, not very difficult. So the idea <laughs> that there could be a blanket ban if, in fact, there is a formal policy that the president puts forward, um, what does that mean? Does that mean that the several thousand transgender people in the military would, would be kicked out, that they'd have to leave? That's a possibility. So there's about 15,000, well, there's anywhere from 2,000 to 15,000, depending on studies. There's a lot of people that just have not come out. There's a lot of people who are in hiding, fear for their lives, which I have been at times also. As a Navy SEAL, I feared for my life because of, you know, the hate that's, that's thrown at you every day. But uh, 
the thing about the whole policy is it could change. And so the the most drastic and the worst case scenario would be all those folks are kicked out with general or other honorable situation. So that would be the worst case scenario. Then the the best of the worst cases would be that they're allowed to still serve, but they would have to uh, – well, no, that would be the best of the worst cases. The medium worst case mm-hmm. would be that they would uh, continue to serve, but they would have to go back to uh, what who they were when they signed their contract. And then the best of the worst case would be they would be grandfathered in, there would be no more recruitment, and you couldn't come through uh, recruit training or anything else. So there would be no more new – people joining that were transgender. Mm-hmm. So this would be the cutoff. So you'd have 2,000 to 15,000 people that would be allowed to continue to serve. And then what that would become, it would become a live, uh, real study to find out how much the real cost is, not these make-believe numbers that they're throwing around. It would be a real study on the unit cohesion, on morale, on everything else mm-hmm. with the people that are in right now. So they would be grandfathered, basically. And what do you think the response will be of the transgender community, um, veterans, people who are serving now in the military, if this policy is actually put forward in a formal way? Do you think that mm-hmm. there'll be pushback? Would there be lawsuits? What, what will happen? All of the above. If this goes through and these people, all of you know, friends, you know, brothers and sisters, if they end up getting kicked out or this is just this, it turns into something of those worst case scenarios. It's going to be a lot of, it's going to be a fight. And that's what I tweeted back to uh, President Trump was, you opened a can of worms. This is something that you think was just, worms, it was worms, your It was a little different than that. I think you said whoop-ass. It's whoop-ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that because I've been trying Define to whoop-ass. So whoop-ass is just like you have just uh, opened a bee's nest up. You just, you just smacked the hornet's nest with a baseball bat. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to start coming out of the woodwork. They're, we're going to, we're, it's upsetting. And there's a lot of veterans that served who are transgender. And there's a lot of people who are allies to those transgender vets. And there's a lot of people who are parents and brothers and sisters to those transgender veterans. So it's a huge population. And if you consolidate and you empowered that population to fight, you know, the, the 2018 midterms are going to be much different if this really starts happening. Because that's going to, it's going to really, uh, it cements a voice. And American politics, you're going to be in there by the vote. You're not in there because you're a good guy or good girl. You're not in there because you, you know, tell all these lies during your campaign trail. You're in there because we voted. And you're going to make a vote, darn it. So walk me through what you think the response could be. There are lawsuits by individual people who could be asked to leave, Mm -hmm. potentially lawsuits by people who want to join the military but are being told that they can't. So it's a lot of potentially legal costs. Yes. How do you envision the sort of... I've actually said it a couple of times. I said, you're talking about funding. And the funding for uh, open transgender service was anywhere from 2 to $8 million. $2 million. It's not a whole lot when you talk about the military budget. It's like 0.0001%, it's like whatever less, it is. Less it's, than it's one-tenth really of 1% of the And everybody keeps talking about Viagra. Right? They talk about uh, breast augmentation to, uh, to soldiers' wives. They talk about a lot of other things. They spend $50 million on Viagra alone per year. In a Department of Defense. Now, if you want to talk about cost, there's then that's just one. Then maybe that's necessary. I don't know. But there's a, there's tons and tons. There's all so much money out there, waste, fraud, and abuse. And I've seen it myself personally. So you can't tell me that two million dollars is a funding issue. 
And it's not the issue. And to clarify, we're talking so to go about back the cost of the cost reassignment of, surgery. Of reassignment, or, the cost mm-hmm. of, and the thing is, is we keep talking about the cost of gender reassignment and all that. A lot of transgender people, we don't want surgery. We don't need to. We don't care. I want to be able to go out on a weekend and not be witch hunted and told that if I say the word transgender, you see me out on a weekend dressed as I am right now. I'm a soldier during a week. On a weekend, I'm going to let my hair down, literally. And then you're going to kick me out because of that? So the witch hunts would start. And you have a lot of folks who are just kind of, I don't want surgery. You're not going to spend a dime on me. But I don't want you witch hunt me. I don't want to be searched out and told that I'm inferior, unworthy, or mentally unstable. I am not mentally unstable. You know, some people might say I am, but just say whatever you want. But I will tell you right now that I could be the best soldier you ever had. Do you think this is, in a way, a, a turning point? for the transgender community. I mean, we saw the gay and lesbian rights movement make huge strides, gay marriage and acceptance, and it seems pretty irrevocable now. Yes. Um, But yet transgender people are basically right now fighting for the right to use certain restrooms. Um, Will Mm -hmm. this kind of pushback from the president, does that sort of solidify something? Is is something happening now in this community or... Or, or the opposite, is, is this going to put some pressure on people to kind of be quiet? I hope this uh, consolidates the community. And the thing is, the transgender community, we're super diverse. I mean, we're across everything. You're going to see uh, African-American, white, Protestant, Catholic. You're going to see every divide. You're going to see Native Americans. You're going to see everything. And so that community is just like America. There are divisions amongst the community. And I hope that a lot of those divisions will just go away and say that we are all really fighting the same fight. And then I would see all the allies also see this is just a human rights issue. This is us as people just trying to live peaceful lives to ourselves and that we would just be treated equally. We're not asking for anything extra, really. We're just saying. So I, I hope that the, the entire community, the transgender community, the, the LGBT community as a whole, and all of our allies – would just understand that this is the fight. This is the one, just like you said, it's a turning point. If we can achieve this one goal for open service for the military, this would be huge for the entire community. And I think really for all marginalized Americans, this is the fight. So I I watched this um, documentary about you, Lady Valor, that was produced by CNN, and you can view it on Amazon. And and it was fascinating. And one of the things that struck me is um, it said that the percentage of transgender people who serve in the military mm-hmm. is higher, much higher than the percentage of just general Americans who, who yes. serve. What is it that you think draws transgender people to military service? Well, my opinion in the way I see it is that transgender people were the underdogs and were marginalized to the point and just even if we're not openly transgender, if we don't show a lot, just like me growing up on a farm, you know, in, in Western Pennsylvania, I knew who I was at a very young age. And then I always put myself in that category that I was always fighting to try to to try to just be me, to try to just be there. So you you're marginalized yourself and if you're open, everyone marginalizes you and picks on you and bullied and you're an underdog. So is how do you fight what, that? Is that what drew you to basically well, the most macho branch of the military, the well, Navy it kind of SEALs? Did. Even though you thought of yourself on the inside as a woman, 
you were drawn to this very strong. Well, I thought on the inside, I wasn't worthy. Why am I even here? What's going on? I was always an underdog. And then uh, it's also a good place to maybe think that you could fight against who you really are. And so if I'm in the uniform and my hair is cut and I'm in the ranks and I'm marching and I'm doing all the stuff, I'm able to put aside any feelings about myself. So my own well-being or my own happiness, if you would say that, is going to be crushed to the point that I am just a seal. And I did that for 20 years. I crushed everything of my own personal feelings and my own, uh, air quote, happiness. It was just, I was a seal. That's all. So everything else went away. I wasn't male or female. I wasn't, you know, anything. I was just a seal. Were you happy? I was a good seal. <laughs> I, uh, I was happy. I had a lot of great friends. There's camaraderie. There's a certain esprit de corps. There's all of that. And you can definitely be happy. So many people who've served with you have said that you just, you had no fear that you kept going back and you did all these voluntary deployments to some of the most mm-hmm. dangerous, you know, combat zones in the world. Yeah. And you just kept going back at it. I mean, what accounted for that? I did a lot of things, maybe reckless, uh, over the top. I did a lot because I didn't feel I was worthy. And so I had to constantly prove myself. I had to keep doing better and better and strive for more and more. So you retired from the Navy in 2011, and yes. in 2013, you went from Chris to Kristen, back yes. and came out as Kristen. Um, what surprised you most about being a woman? Uh, walking down the street and automatically being treated differently. In what way? Well, you're, well, I never really get the whistling, but I do get a lot of the looks, and you automatically are afraid something's going to happen because there is there's there's a strange aggression that I don't know if it was me or is it was a perception of a lot of men and a lot of people out there just the way you're looked at and you can feel it it's like an oppression of aggression I don't know I I know that I was treated differently from day one and especially because I mean I was looking like a dude in a dress and so there's that, there's that extra <laughs> you know, bad part of it. And then I speak to other women, you know, friends of mine, and I try to explain it. And they're like, yeah, well, that's every day. And they, I mean, you're probably kind of go, yeah, yeah, you're right. That you are looked at differently. You're looked at as maybe an object or sometimes you're looked at as this, you're looked at, I'm going to need to help you because uh, you're a woman and you just always need help. It's that feeling. It's that feeling of, okay, now what do I do? I always have to look out and look around at my surroundings and know that at any time something bad could happen. So here you are, 20 years a Navy SEAL, and you're in the street and you feel vulnerable. Yes, very much so. You know, you could turn around and break it. Nice. one and a half, right? Yeah. I think, well, the best way I could describe it was, it, and maybe more so because I was transgender, and I don't, I don't look like a cover model, and I'm, I don't pass as a female normally on the street so people see me and they automatically go oh something's going on there so i'm walking down the street in florida and i have four guys walking towards me and i'm alone i'm just walking from you know my car to a bar to meet some friends and i'm walking past these four guys and it's a tight sidewalk i say excuse me and i kind of go sideways and i'm walking past them 
And uh, one of them, after they were gone, after they were past me, I guess in his head, it clicked. <clears throat> and so real quick, he came up behind me and punched me as hard as he could in the back of the head. As he was saying, fag, boom, and I get punched in the back of the head. I'm knocked out of my feet. So I'm going down and I'm on the ground. As I'm waking up, I'm being stomped by these four guys. So I'm waking up after being knocked out. And one of them kicks me right in the head like a football. Bam. And I'm knocked out again. So I remember like a flash of me trying to get up and again blacked out. And I, I see the foot coming to me. And so I'm knocked out again. And now I'm getting up again for the second time. And uh, those guys run off. And uh, the saddest part was as I'm getting up and I'm trying to find a shoe that's over there. And I'm, and I'm just like, and I'm bleeding and I'm really hurting. And I'm looking around and I see almost a dozen people within like 25 yards, 20 yards, watching. And then I, I walk down to the bar, and I'm limping down, and I'm hurt pretty bad. And I get down there, and my friends, they look at me, and they all just start running towards me. What happened? What's going on? And a couple of them ran out front, and they're like looking around to see what was, you know, to try to catch what was going on. It was like, those were my friends. Those are, you know, military veterans. And they, were, they knew me. So there was four guys that were stomping me, trying to kill me. And this was in 2012. Mm -hmm. That's when that happened. So those guys didn't talk to me. They didn't know me. They didn't know anything about me. They saw my physical appearance, and they attacked and tried to kill me. And those guys? Ten to twelve people, all those people around watching. It's, uh, it was just like, I was just like, oh, man. What do you, I just, it's... It makes me sad for this country that, and they were younger, probably in their 20s, makes me really sad for our country. Those guys who are in the bar with you, your friends, the veterans, how do you think they would have reacted or treated you if you had transitioned while in the military? My close friends are about the same. They're just, they know me. They know my abilities. Did, did they, they know, know anything about this while There's you were There's a couple serving? of guys that knew. So there was one in particular that I got dressed up for, and I was, I was uh, rowing my boat. I lived on a sailboat out at a mooring, and he lived on a boat too. So I rowed over with a six-pack of beer, rowed over his boat, and uh, knocked on the side of his boat and said, Hey, Mike, you there? And uh, he was like, Yeah, I'm here. What's up? And he comes out of his uh, boat onto the deck, and he looks down. And I was like, Hey, I got a six-pack. You want to have a couple of beers? And I have a dress on. And, I said, and he was like, Yeah, sure. Come on board. Oh hey, it's a, it's a nice dress. And then I come up on board, and then we talk, and he asks questions, and uh, he was just like, "Yeah, whatever, dude. I know you, and it's cool. Just don't do this in front of anyone else, because you will get kicked out." This is like two thousand six or seven. No, it was earlier than that. This is in the nineties. So that was in the nineties. I did that. It was probably ninety six, ninety seven. So yeah, he was like, I don't care. Just don't ever do this in front of anybody else because you will you will lose your job. And for me, my job was more important than my own happiness. And so again, I just bottled it all up and put it away. I think it's it's really interesting that you have had this experience of seeing life through two lenses, a yes, male and a female. That's exactly it. It's like wearing a pair of glasses, but one is colored differently. And so you're always seeing through that other glass and you're going, why can't I just close that eye and I'm going to look over there and that's my life. But then you got to open your eyes up and you go, ah, oh, so I can't do that. I can't do that. This is me and this is what I think. But all the time, your, your brain and how you're thinking is always from that other lens. 
And so things I did throughout life were probably a little bit different. And even some of my SEAL team buddies says, yeah, I could never put a finger on it. I, was, I could never figure it out. I never knew why you said this or why you did that or this happened and your reactions are different. Would but you, then the then light bulb went off and now I know why. Given your experience um, 20 years as a Navy SEAL, what are your thoughts now on women serving in the military and women serving specifically in combat roles? Are you mm-hmm. in favor of that? And, and sort of what, what have you seen of that? So I'm in favor, and this would go into transgender and gay and African-American and women and everything. I'm in favor of the door to the military to be wide open. You know, come in, sign up. We're going to give you the tests. We're going to test you physically, mentally, and then that door is wide open, and you pass the tests. Come on in. Combat roles. Here's all of the tests. Here's what you need to do in order to fulfill those missions. The door is wide open. If you pass the test, come on. You have the capabilities. Same thing in the SEAL team. Same thing in Rangers or Green Berets or any, any force. There are metrics. There are measurements because there are jobs to do. If you're qualified to meet these uh these tests, and you pass these tests, then you're there. You're good. And some of the tests are pretty difficult, and they're more difficult because of upper body strength for a lot of women. It's like pull-ups. You're going to do, you know, 30 pull-ups with a 50-pound weight hanging on you. If you can do 30 pull-ups with a 50-pound weight hanging on you, then you just passed part of the test. And it'll give me the whole population of women that could do 30 pull-ups with 50 pounds, it's not going to be as big of a population as it would be for men because there are differences. There's physical differences with upper body strength and that, but there's a lot of women that can do it. I want the door to be open to those women. More so I guess some than, people would say that maybe the metrics should be different for men and women, and why? others would disagree with that. Well, why would the metrics be different? Because the job's the same. So if you have to carry somebody out of combat and you're 90 pounds, we have to carry the 200 and something pound guy, can you do that job? And that's part of the job. Now, the door being open to that, and this is a pretty good conversation, I think. It's something that probably should happen. Is that there has to be those metrics and you can't have uh, the, a gender on those. For the SEAL teams especially because we have to climb those ladders and they're really small ladders and you're climbing up 30, 40 feet up on a ship while you're wearing body armor, while you're carrying your weapon and all the ammunition, all the other stuff. So you're carrying like 50 pounds, 50 to 100 pounds of equipment up a ladder. It's 30 feet up. And that's why it's like 30 pull-ups with 50 pounds. Do you think you could still do it now having gone through all the hormone treatments? And- I, I don't know. I think I could. But, I mean, I did all that working out. So I have, you know, 40 years of doing 50 pull-ups at a time and just like – I have 40 years of that. If I didn't have that, probably not. Because there is. I mean, I saw a difference in some of my strength goes. So the metrics are so important because it's the job. So they say 30 pull-ups with 50 pounds. If you can do that, then I want you on my team because you will be a valuable asset on that team. So you can't change the... And I've heard people talk about gender norming and something about it's a different test. I don't know how that test could be different, honestly. And I know I'm going to make a lot of people angry and upset about that, but I'm just being truthful. The job is very rigorous. The job is, you know, a metric. It's a measurement. So we don't know what the real mission is going to be, but we have these things you have to pass in order to know that you can do these other missions. 
So I think requalification should be, it should be part of it, or should be looked at very closely. Would it have been worth it to you if it meant, if you could have transitioned while you're on in the SEALs, and then it turned out that as a result of the transition, you couldn't pass the test, you couldn't go on an deployment, would it still have been worth it, given how important your job was to you? No, I mean, again, I mean, this is just me personally. I would have just been Christopher, and I would have served and been SEAL, because being a SEAL and serving my country and being that part of that team is the most important thing to me. So I wouldn't have done anything. I just would have done it the same. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people in the military that probably are doing that right now. You know, not I know a colonel uh, that I'm friends with, and, and he's gay, and he would never come out as gay or never let anyone in the workplace know that he's gay because you will be treated differently. You looked at differently. They will use different terminology in any evaluations. He would end up having, it would be tough. And he just doesn't want to deal with it. He's like, no, my job, I'm going to do this and I'm a leader and I don't want anyone to, he's just going to, he's going to continue doing what he's doing. He doesn't want to jeopardize or put up with or in, I don't know, just, for him, it's worth it just to stay in a closet and not, nobody needs to know my personal life, and I don't care. I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to do it fully, and I would have done the same thing. We always hear this um, expression that the military shouldn't be the place for doing social experiments, right? We, we hear that a lot. What, what is your thought yeah. on that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it already is a social experiment. If you take a room, and it's a room this size, and grab a guy from New York City, a guy from Texas, somebody from California, somebody from all over the country, all different walks of life, different races, different religions, different, and stick them in at one room and make them live there with their hair buzzed off and get along and do these jobs. Isn't that a little bit of a social experiment? And you had some of the most intense experiences. I mean, you were in Iraq, yep. you were in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you were in Saddam Hussein's palace. I mean, you yeah. you kind of seen... Sat on his throne. Sat on his throne. You've yeah. seen it all. Yeah. Um, and we've been learning a lot in recent years about the toll that that takes on people. Yeah. Veterans yeah. come back. They have yeah. PTSD. Um, and here you are dealing with whatever your own mm-hmm. personal you know, fallout and consequences yeah. of that, plus your transitioning. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what that was like for you personally, those years yes. adjusting to civilian life and adjusting to being a woman? So going from military life to civilian life, and I'll give you just a snapshot of what it's like. So what, you're, what you are is you're in that close camaraderie and combat and everything else, life and death, relying on each other. And it forms a tight, uh, a very tight uh, relationship between all those folks that are doing that. And then suddenly you're back in the States and you're alone. So your team is gone. All those guys that you would talk to and lean on and trust, everybody's gone. And you're by yourself. That's the biggest change is the fact that suddenly you're just thrust back into the civilian community and you're expected to just, hey, it's okay. Just go back there at your old hometown and get an apartment and get a job. Were you able to um, share what you were going through with any of your veteran friends who'd served with you? I mean, here you are back and alone, yeah. and now you're going through this transition. Yeah. Um, who, who was there yeah. to support you? Well, I would take it, the military to civilian for me was in 2011. So in 2011, I was, I was doing some pretty wild work. I'm, I'm kind of a science geek, so I'm a, 
inventor and innovator and I build stuff and I'm kind of, I'm in that whole weird world of inventions. Yeah. I was doing all that stuff. And so I carried right into a contractor job. And so I was around a lot of the same people. I was there. I still had that entire support system when I went from military uniform into civilian life. So I didn't have that huge uh, fracture of all of those ties and all those people around me. Mm. So my transition from military to civilian was a lot easier than a lot of these guys. And now it's 2013 and you say that you're coming out. What were those conversations like? with your former buddies, with, with the other yeah. veterans. How did you even approach that with them? Okay, so me coming out as Krista Krista and me just doing that, I did that super badly. So I went from suit and tie one day, there at work, and then the next day I walked in. And this is like Pentagon work. This is going into like the big buildings. And uh, I was wearing a dress and heels and makeup. How did you decide to do it that day? It was like a breaking point where I just I was just like ah, I'm retired and I fought for happiness I fought for liberty and I don't live it and my younger sister I was at I was at their house and I was eating dinner and had a couple of drinks and my sister started calling me a liar she said because I had a I was suit and tie I got there to the house and I put on a skirt and I just relaxed a little bit literally let my hair down I was just like ah. Oh. Okay, I can be me for an hour. Then I got to go back to work tomorrow morning in suit and tie and go do my Pentagon work. So my sister was like, well, you're a liar. You're telling everybody in the world that you're suit and tie, Christopher Beck, SEAL team, you know, badass. But you're at home with us and you're Kristen and you're, you're nicer to be around. You're more sensitive and all this other stuff and I can talk to you. But when you're suit and tie guy, why, why do you do both these? I said, well, I'm protecting my job. I'm doing this. And she said, well, you're lying. And then probably like a you know impetulant little kid, I was going, I am not a liar. <laughs> and then I put a dress on and walked to work. So the problem with that is my bosses and people I work with and the whole rest of the world, I guess, it was just like, it's a, it's like, whoa, what just happened? So there's no preparation. I didn't tell anyone. I just walked in. And so my bosses, everybody's freaking out. They're making phone calls and it's all just, it was a really terrible way to do it. What did they say to you? They said, are you okay? They were all worried. They said, what happened? What's going on? Did we miss something? What, can you come in and talk? And so there was more worry than there was. Uh, there was a lot of like what's going on and worry and everything else just checking on me. And then it was like they were talking about PTSD and the SEALs and you know what I went through and all that. And I said, no, that has nothing to do with it. This is just me and I want my own freedom or my own liberty to be able to live this. To be able to just be me. Is that okay? And they were like, don't get it, but yeah, but it was a lot of yes, but what about, and it's a lot of yes, buts, what about this? What about that? And so it got really difficult. And then eventually I just couldn't go to the meetings and I got no phone calls, no meetings, and my job got very difficult, as I think a lot of women probably see. You don't get the phone calls. You don't get to go to the same meetings. After work, they don't, you know, they don't invite you to the bar to just go have beers with the guys and smoke a cigar. I don't get invited to any of that anymore. And so I just toughed it out for about a year, and I was just like, man, this is just not worth it. I'm not doing any work. I'm not part of the team anymore. And so I, I left. So I went from making you know the $150,000 a year job and, and being part of the team and doing great work to just being uh, marginalized disenfranchised, ostracized. This is the worst. So because I didn't grow up like that, I grew up as the bearded Navy SEAL everybody bought beers for. And I was invited to all the meetings. They wanted me to extra meetings because they just wanted me to be there. 
to not doing any of it. And I think that's what happens to a lot of women in the workplace. And that's, you fight from that position all the time. This is what I was talking about earlier, but it's really hard to put in words sometimes. Is that if you're marginalized, you're looked at, you're not invited to meetings, you're not invited to the bar after work, because it it's, we're going to Hooters. Well, you pick that bar on purpose maybe to make me uncomfortable or to do, or can we just go over to, you know, Chili's and just have a beer over there? It's just, we're just having beers together. It's a workplace thing. So they can pick the place, they can pick the times, they can not call you, they cannot send any invites. And it's tough. I didn't know that's what the world was like until I was faced with that. So final question on that day when, when your sister said to you, you're, you're not being yourself and you decided, yeah. you know, this is who you are. You also, I think, have said you felt that that was what you fought for. Yes. 100%. So 20 years as a SEAL, and I talk about America. I talk about our country. And if you could describe America, what's, what's the difference between our country and a lot of other countries? Maybe not even a lot of countries, but the one thing we can point at and we can say, this is what we, this is what we believe in, this is what we fight for. This is really what America really stands for. And I ask people, I say, what would be that one word for you? For me, it's liberty. For me, it's individual liberty. It's like we have liberty. We have freedom of speech, freedom of the press. We, uh, we can carry guns. We have you know, the right to bear arms. We, have, we vote. Everyone's allowed to vote. Every, it's a right. We, everybody votes. Everybody can get a job. There's jobs. There's, you, know, you can't discriminate against a person for housing, jobs, and all that. There's like so many things that we say. It's all going back to liberty individual liberty that you can live your life as fully as you you know grab onto as fully as you can as as full as you can go liberty liberty the statue of liberty with a big light up there shining in the world saying we have liberty religious liberty so much of that but i don't have liberty to just be me to look in the mirror and go yeah that's me to walk down the street and be like hey this is me i'm not hurting anybody i'm not taking anything away from anyone else in the entire world it's just my liberty. This is my individual liberty. And isn't that what America's about? So yes, this is what I fought for. I fought for individual liberty. Kristen, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.